Hi everyone, I'm Claire Liu and I'm the CEO of Know Your Team software that helps you avoid becoming a bad boss. And today it is my absolute honor to have on the heartbeat an incredible human. I have with me Tim O'Reilly, who is the founder of O'Reilly Media, a media company that for the past almost now 40 years has published books, run conferences, and been just really a source of innovation around technology. I mean, I don't even know if you know this, Tim, but some of the books that you've actually published are the reasons that I actually learned Ruby on Rails. You know, I have headfirst <laughs> Rails on my shelf somewhere, you know, agile web development. It's uh, everything that you've published has had such an enormous impact on millions of people's lives. And not to mention, so Tim and I are also sort of connected by way of the fact that there's a fund that you recently started in the past few years called NDBC, and uh, it's focused on profit-focused companies. And we are in uh, the portfolio batch for for V3. And so an honor to be able to partner with you, to be able to partner with Bryce Roberts, who we've also had on the show. And so excited to have you here, Tim, today. I know you've been thinking a lot about the way technology has... Can I, can I interrupt you very briefly? Oh, oh, please, yeah. <laughs> I just, just a small correction to the, uh, or not correction, addition to the introduction. Yes. Uh, the biggest part of our business today is our online learning platform. Uh, it's actually bigger than books and conferences combined. And so uh, you'll find out about that if you go to O'Reilly.com. Uh, but the other thing I wanted just to mention that NDVC is part of our fund, which is actually about 10 years old, uh, O'Reilly Alpha Tech Ventures and where I'm a partner with Bryce. Exactly. No, thank you so much for that elaboration. It's uh, There's so much about what you've done and what you've built. It's almost like, how can I even <laughs> fit it into the to the 30-second intro for sure? Uh, no, but I, I know right before this, we were talking about how a lot of your energy, in addition to running and building O'Reilly Media, in addition to OATV and NDVC, et cetera, is thinking about the way technology is influencing policy and influencing our, our world. And so we could definitely go into all that and talk all about that, Tim. But today in particular, I'm actually dying to ask you this one question that I've been asking leaders for almost the past two years now on this podcast. And you don't know the question. So I'm going to give it to you here live if you're ready. Sure. All right, we'll do this. So the question is, what's one thing, or it could be several things, that you wish you would have learned earlier as a leader? Probably the thing that certainly as advice that I give to others is value your financial people more than you do. If you're a technology person, you tend to think that technology is all that matters. Uh, I wrote a piece maybe eight or nine years ago for uh, LinkedIn called How I Failed. And yes. I, I actually described the problem I had, which was that for many years, I was the most sophisticated financial person in my company. And it wasn't for lack of trying. I hired CFOs and so on. But I would always be saying like, hey, you know, there's something wrong with that number. And my CFO would say, what? Why? How do you know? And I say, well, you know, uh, a number doesn't go go from being, you know, 1.5% uh, of revenue to, be, yeah. to being 4% in a month, you know, 
without some reason. So tell me what the reason is. You know, so I had kind of built this dashboard sense of all these things are speaking to me and I, I was pretty good at it. Yes. But until I actually had a CFO who was better at it than I was, I was just missing a huge opportunity. You know, and, and we really got that actually because of the dot-com bust where we had mm. uh, somebody who had actually been working with us as a consultant and we nearly went out of business. And, you know, she came in and she renegotiated our contracts. She sort of shifted many parts yeah. of the business, made it way more efficient. And I look back, you know, during the 90s, uh, we, we were primarily a publishing company at that point. We'd started conferences and we'd done some other things on the side, like start the first web content company and the first yep. web portal, the first website to have advertising. But we had all this money tied up in inventory and we had all these bad agreements. And as a result, cash flow was killing us. We were always profitable. Yes. We were a company that had been started with, you know, no investment other than $500 of used furniture that I used to start the company. And <laughs> all of our profits were getting sucked up by inventory. And, uh, you know, as a result of that, we, we had to do various things. Like we, we sold, uh, you know, we'd had a number of, of equity exits from projects that we'd spun out. Like this, this early thing, we, GNN, we sold to AOL. Mm -hmm. Later we yep. actually were an uh, investor in Blogger, uh, which we sold to Google. And in each case, we had this. We had to bail out of the stock way early because we needed the cash. Yep. And just to get clear, just how bad this was in the '90s, leading up to the dot-com bust, our average revenue per title per book in our publishing business was about two hundred fifty thousand dollars, like per title. And after the dot-com bust, it was about uh, sixty thousand dollars. And in the, in, the 90, in the 90s, we were always short of cash. And in the 2000s, once we got this real financial discipline from Laura Baldwin, we yep. started putting money in the bank. And we, at yep. the point, we ended up putting tens of millions of dollars in the bank. And it was all about understanding what a powerful lever cash flow is. And so this kind of relates to the NDVC story because sure. if you actually – don't have we were not on the VC drip, but we were sort of on the well grow and you know the money will come and you know our, our version of VC was we would invent something new and we would spin it out and sell it or you know we'd have a, a best selling product that would give us a big cash infusion and then we would spend it. It was sort of like lacking the financial discipline. Yes, lacking the financial discipline. You know, we still succeeded, but we could have succeeded so much more. You know, if we had been running tight from the get-go. Absolutely. I'm, you know, sitting over here just like nodding my head <laughs> vigorously, Tim, because it is a thing that unfortunately happens so often that is the main contributing factor to a lot of companies going under and to a lot of CEOs. You know, I have friends of mine who, you know, have disclosed to me just how that lack of financial discipline has put them and their company in a place where they can't make good decisions anymore as a leader. And yet it's interestingly not talked about, yeah. right? I think literally I've interviewed more than 50 people over the past, you know, two years and no two people have said the same exact answer to this question, but no one has come even close to talking about this financial discipline. And I do remember you writing about this in your piece, you know, how I failed. So I'm curious 
to get your perspective. I mean, you work with hundreds and hundreds of entrepreneurs all the time and leaders, not to mention, why do you think it is that we don't talk about this? Why is this not as obvious as it should be? I mean, there's two things. First, we are in an industry that is driven by venture capital. And the incentives of venture capital are to basically have you spend money fast, run out, raise a new round, experiment fast to figure out if you are going to be one of the bottle rockets. You know, because that's what they're looking for. You know, so if you think about the portfolio of venture capital as, as a lab, you know, they're here, the scientists yes. in white coats, and they want their various uh, lab cultures to, to grow fast. You know, you're given lots yeah. of nutrients and because and, you want to figure out which ones are going to be winners. And that's not necessarily the incentive for the entrepreneur. Right. The incentive for the entrepreneur should be to right size, to do market discovery at the right pace. And we've started to get a uh, narrative about that from the lean startup movement. You know, when you, you hear from Eric Reese and he says, you know, <laughs> his, you know his first startup <laughs> failed and they realized that, oh, they're, they, you know, should they have done three, uh, you know, chat systems instead of 10? <laughs> no, he said, no, actually, what we should have done is just done a web page advertising our product and we would have found out that nobody wanted it. You know, that whole uh, minimum viable product (laughs) idea is is certainly related to that. But also, I remember uh, Mark Leslie, who was the founder of Veritas, he actually has a bit of a chip on his shoulder because he feels like he talked about lean startup principles, except in sales, uh, long before Steve Blank and Eric did. But Mark talked about the mistake that a lot of companies make on sales, which is they build a, a giant sales force. And he said, look, when you're trying to figure out whether you have the right product or not, you need a very different kind of salesperson. And you only need two or three of them because they're doing Mm. discovery. And you want to scale it until you know that it works. And I think that, you know, in general, that is, you know, the discipline of seed to, you know, to first round, uh, you know, to, to, uh, you know, and and the, the scaling of VC is supposed to follow that model where you, you know, you're doing a small thing and discovering and so you should be lean. But in practice, there's been so much capital that it became very easy or too easy for companies to say, oh, my job is to put the pedal to the metal right from the get go. And I think when you're, you know, when you're living in an ecosystem where the incentive for yourself isn't there to be accountable to being profitable and the primary stakeholders, the folks who are even one giving you money and then also encouraging you to continue to spend are, you know, they have different incentives than yours. It, yeah, no, of course you don't want to think about it or talk about it. There are people like Reid Hoffman who writes a book about blitz scaling saying this is the way to succeed, you know, right. take insane risks, you know, <laughs> do the blitzkrieg. You know, that is actually, as I said in the, the piece I wrote about that for Quartz back in uh, mm-hmm, February, yep. I said that it's, it's, it's a survivorship bias masquerading as a strategy. You know, yes, yes. companies have done that and they've succeeded. Absolutely. But yep. boy, it's, it's, it's self-selected. And, you know, if you look at a company like Google, it didn't raise very much money. You know, they, they scaled up as they succeeded. Right. Even Facebook, which did raise a lot of money, I asked uh, Mark about it, and I said, "No, well, we raised a lot of money because we want, we saw how fast we were growing, and we said we better have a a cushion." He said, "But we were close to cash flow positive the entire time." Right. And so that's sort of an interesting way of of understanding. Again, I think way more businesses would benefit enormously if they understood that you're not building a financial instrument, i.e., you know, something to exit. 
but mm-hmm. you are, you know, you're, you're really trying to build a, a lasting business because then you, you have the opportunity to exit if, if you're really successful. But right. we've increasingly gone into a world where it's this self-fulfilling prophecy where, you know, you even go talk to an entrepreneur and you'll say, how are you doing? And they say, oh, we just raised our Series C. And I go, well, that's not about your business. That's about your fundraising. You know, like I want to hear them say, well, we just landed amazing, yeah. amazing new customers or, uh, you know, our, our, our users love us. Why is the first thing out of your mouth? How much money you raise? Right. You know, and the example I use is like, uh, you know, I, I say, you know, business is like a road trip. You're not you, you can't forget to stop at a gas station, but that's not what you're doing. You know, and this is like you ask somebody, how's your trip? And they go, exactly. oh, man. Uh, you know, I just filled my tank at the, you know, the local Exxon. It was great. You know, yeah, really? <laughs> That's how you're doing? That's how you're tripping? Right. right. I love that analogy. I, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's such an important reminder, I think, to actually recenter on why we even do this in the first yeah, place exactly. as leaders. That, yeah, that articulation of, of sort of the highlight of, of what they're building, being the funding, says, says so much in itself. I'm wondering for you, for you, Tim, and you talked a little bit about this in your piece of, of how I failed, you know, bringing in a CFO, becoming a lot more financially rigorous, uh, realizing, oh, wow, I should actually treat, uh, you know, the financial team as partners in the business. What, on a more maybe tactical level, do you feel like leaders overlook or feel like they could be doing to make sure they have this, you know, financial rigor? Is it, you know, as soon as you can hire a CFO? Is it, uh, you know, make sure you have some, like, depending on, you know, the size. I'm curious just to, if there, as you look back, kind of when were, you know, when were the moments when you're like, ah, no, I really wish someone would have told me this earlier. I think it's just something that grew on me over time. Uh, you know, again, obviously, I had this real wake-up call uh, with the dot-com bust, where uh, you know we shrank by you know thirty percent, you know, year on year. You know, we were a, I think about a seventy million dollar company in two thousand, and and uh, it, that's in revenue and not not in funding, <laughs> not our valuation. <laughs> exactly. Yep. In uh, revenue. In, yep. In, in revenue, and then suddenly we were a fifty million dollar company, and we had to lay off a quarter of our staff. It was pretty harrowing. Uh, yeah, I'd always been a very paternalistic employer too. So I kind of like the, yeah, I, I would have probably gone down with the ship and Laura was the one who came in and said, you have to do layoffs, you know, mm. or, or the company's going to go down. And we did right, we laid off right. 25% of our staff. And I literally, it was sort of a worst experience of my life. We had these binders of the people we were considering and I'm sitting there kind of looking at the binder sort of like this. And, and I see all this hair on my binder and I go, what the hell, where this, and my hair was falling out literally as I was trying to. You know, as I was confronting that reality, yep, it was really a, kind of a horrible experience. But anyway, so that's what woke me up to it. But yes. the other thing I would just sort of say is I did have this sense of finance as a kind of dashboard. And I think we have a lot of entrepreneurs who understand this from the point of view of, well, how's my app doing? You know, what are users doing? You know, this idea you're building a shadow app that's sort of tracking your users mm-hmm. through the system. And I think the best companies understand that those two things are the same. Hmm. Uh, there are a lot of, of financial people out there and CFOs out there who are just, you know, bean counters. They are just on the, the numbers side. And you have to actually go, no, I want a, a, a CFO who's really attuned to, to this is the lifeblood of the business. How do all these activities come together? 
And that's also really uh, about strategy. Uh, th there's this wonderful mm -hmm. uh, line from these consultants I worked with back also around 2000, um, Dan and Meredith Beam. And they, they, they did this work on what's your business model. And they had a, a, a line, which is a business model is the way that all the parts of your business work together to create customer value and business advantage, something like that. Yes. What, what do you mean by that? You know, and they, 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 they use as an example, Southwest Airlines. And they go, OK, you say Southwest Airlines, United, they're both airlines. They have completely different business models, and they go, "Well, explain." And 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 they go through. Well, look, uh, 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 United had this hub and spoke model. Southwest is all point to point. United does baggage handling. Southwest, you know, doesn't. They won't forward your baggage from one flight to another. Uh, they've done all these things that make them able to be the low cost airline. And, yes. and surprise, surprisingly, they also pay their people more. Uh, which is you know, counterintuitive. But again, yep. uh, stock ownership, there were all these things. They said these are all part of their business model. You don't just sort of say, oh, yeah, we're going to have a low-cost version of United Airlines. And that's why all those other low-cost airlines failed because they didn't actually understand how all the pieces come together. Uh, you know, So it's just really a great way of forcing you to think about what makes you special, what is the source of yes. your value, and how all of these pieces come together. And your financial team should actually be helping you understand how that actually leads to financial outcomes. Absolutely. So in some sense, they're mapping the flows of activity and uh, you know through the business that lead to your results. Definitely. I, there's like two different threads that that sort of I, I'm pulling together here. One is just this sort of insane amount of sensitivity, right, around the, the linkage between finances and, yep. you know, the actual progress and movement in the business. And then two is just this integrative approach to thinking about it, right, and that you actually want your financial team to be not just like you were saying, bean counters, but yep. a part of the strategy and really understanding how the two influence each other. And I mean, my guess is it sounds like, you know, even in the beginning, you had that very intuitive sense of, okay, if these numbers are down, then this means this in the business and I have to pay closer attention and this is off and it becomes sort of a gut feeling. Um, and I think a lot of leaders don't even pay attention to that. Like, I think it's, oh, especially yeah. if you don't consider yourself like a numbers person or a finance person, you're just, you know, it's like, oh, someone else is going to take care of that. I love that reminder of just that linkage and sensitivity between finances and and the business, and then that integrative approach around thinking thinking about finance. Can I pivot the conversation a little bit to a, a totally different topic? Let's do it. Yeah, and I also have like five million questions, Tim, as well. But I, I, I want to hear what's on your mind. <laughs> I just wanted to talk about uh, you know since this is a podcast about leadership. Yes. And a really important concept for people is to understand that leadership isn't just about your own company. You know, I think the leadership that I have I'm most proud of in my career has been leadership yeah. for the industry. You know, and here yes. we are, this little company. You know, and and, and, and the, the the one I'm, I'm probably proudest of is sort of Web 2.0 thing in some sense, exactly. because it literally came out of our strategic objective in 2003. Here we were on the ropes from the dot com bust, and our strategic objective in 2003 was we want to reignite enthusiasm in the computer industry. Yes. And we said, how are we going to do that? And we said, well, we're going to tell a story about why things are going to get better. Hmm. And, uh, you know, and it was like, hey, you thought the dot com bust was the end. It was actually, you know, the clearing out of the people who had the wrong business model 
we're starting to see the emergence of the people who had this new business model. Let's talk about what that new business model is. Yep. You know, and we went through this list of things. You know, it was like the old model did this, the new model does that. And that was really the heart of that storytelling. And it really did reignite enthusiasm. You know, we had literally consultants coming out of the woodwork saying, thank you. You know, you. <laughs> yes. You know, and it wasn't the first time we'd done it. I'd kind of had that early experience back in the early 90s where we were very involved in the commercial Internet and evangelization for that as a model. Mm -hmm. We literally got permission from the National Science Foundation to do advertising, you know, with GNN. Uh, We're the first people to do it. And it made it possible for other people to do it. So leadership is showing what's possible. And then in this line that we've always used at O'Reilly, create more value than you capture because you make opportunity for others. You can grow with the market. You know, and the same thing with, with, when we were mm. working on Unix and open source. Here were this publisher on this sort of obscure topic. And I still remember all my competitors. I went to them and I said, I want to give booksellers a bibliography of all the the best books on Unix and Linux and, and, and the X window system. And they're like, you're going to do a marketing piece that includes our books? Yeah. And I said, <laughs> yeah, because, you know, I figure if they expand their category because they understand how they see it as a category, will do well. And yes. sure, you'll do well too. It's also yep. why when we started what's now the O'Reilly online platform as an ebook platform, we invited in our biggest competitor. We said, yeah, it'll be good for you, but it'll be even better for our customers and better for us because, yeah, yeah we'll be competing on our platform, but there'll be more value for everybody. Grow the pie. And so, yes, leadership super important inside the company. Yes. But uh, you have to think about your industry and how the, the really great companies are creating value for others. Period. Like no bounds, right? In terms of, oh, is this person giving me money for my product, for my yeah. books, for my conferences? I mean, I think... So much of the impact and the influence that you've had is, I mean, coining terms like open source software and being a leader in in thinking through that space is in thinking about Web 2.0, right? Like that term didn't exist before, you know, really O'Reilly introduced that and and how much that's shaped the way people have thought and and acted in in our industry. Well, here's the thing, Tim, right? So it's like, okay, I, I, I love this, this reframing of leadership, not just specific to your organization, but, you know, to, to a broader scope, thinking, you know, more maybe about problem orientation, thinking more about the people you're trying to serve. What advice would you have for, let's say, the new manager, right? Who says, Tim, this is my first leadership role, right? How can I be thinking about being a leader in my industry at this point? Right? Like, don't you feel like it's too early or, you know, I can barely sort of even create any influence in my company? What would you say to someone who who presents you with that? That's an interesting question because I was going to say, well, first thing is your job is to actually help create value for the people you're leading. Yes. That being said, uh, you know, I, I don't really have any experience of that because I've all, you know, I literally, you know, mm-hmm. O'Reilly was my first job other than being a janitor. So, uh, <laughs> You know, uh, in college. So I don't really have a uh, any experience except being the boss, you know. Yep. Uh, whereas so, so the, what's the idea of what would it be like for somebody who's somewhere down in the hierarchy, say, at a big company mm-hmm. or even a fast growing startup? And you're right. quite sure 
But I, I, I guess I would say, you know, it, it, the, the key thing for every employee and not just a manager is think about value. Yes. Because if you're really focused on are we creating value and you understand what value means, and again, obviously you could mean a lot of different things by that. You could mean simply financial value. But when you think broadly, you're saying, okay, I want to create customer value. What is that? And, you know, how am I going to get my team to do that? You know, you're going to have a very different conversation than if you think your job is simply to, you know, execute a bunch of commands that have been handed down that you don't really understand. So I guess I would just sort of say, see through the instructions that you've Mm, been, your objective is. Yes. And help find that objective. You know, like I think about, you know, I read uh, some amount of military history and you you think about the Battle of Gettysburg. You know, there was some lieutenant who was like, you know, holy shit. You know, he was just a scouting lieutenant. He's like, there's this hill. It's going to be totally critical to controlling this battle. We're going to stay here even though we don't have any orders. Right. He knew what the objective was. And he's frantically sending, send more troops here because this hill really matters. You know? Yes. And, uh, uh, you know, if somebody was just like, well, my orders were to go do this thing, they, you know, yes. they've gotten the objective. And I think I think anywhere, anywhere in the organization, uh, you know, can recognize when there's an opportunity for value creation that is aligned with the company objectives, but being missed. Yes. That mindset shift is so key. Right. So being more concerned with being additive than extractive, you know, asking questions about what can I give? How can we create more or make something better rather than what am I getting in return, right? Does this mean I'm going to get credit? Does this mean I'm going to, you know, move up in the ranks? And what it does, at least from my perspective, you know, as a CEO running my own company is beg the question of then sort of zooming out as the boss, how do you create that environment for then everyone in the company to feel that way and to be more concerned about creating value than what they can get. One of the things that I remember you writing about is how you actually felt like this is something that you did right, is sort of creating that guiding path, that North Star, and and helping people see that objective. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you do that as a leader. It is funny because I sometimes tell the story from the, the this uh, musical from the 1950s. I think it was from the 50s. Okay. The Music Man. It was, okay. <laughs> it was about this con man. I, w- I was in The Music Man in high school, which is how, how I happened to uh, like it. So it's about a con <laughs> man who basically sells band instruments, you know, traveling. He's a traveling yep. salesman. He sells band instruments. And he doesn't actually know anything about music. And so he has this thing that he calls the think system. You know, so he, hum, he, he hums a tune and tells the kids to figure out how to play it. <laughs> I won't go into the story, but I've often said that my management style is a little bit like the music man and, and the think system. You know, I hum a tune mm-hmm. and figure out, go figure out how to play it. And that's not always true because sometimes I'm, I, I, I see something and I'm like, no, this, 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 and this. But that ability to tell a story. And of course, if you like a more poetic version of that, I, I was actually thinking about this earlier. Uh, the, the Antoine de Saint-Exupéry quote, mm. build a ship. Don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. Yes. You know, like a great example of that, I I feel uh, it was in 2008, I gave a talk at our Emerging Technologies Conference called Why I Love Hackers. 
And I ended it with this uh, poem of Rilke, where he says, oh, you know, about, he, oh. he talks about uh, the wrestlers of the Old Testament wrestling with the angels. They couldn't hope to win, but they mm-hmm. can't wait from the fight. And then he says, what we fight with is so small. And when we win, it makes us small. What we want is to be defeated decisively by successively greater beings. Hmm. Jan Palka, who's now my wife, came up to me with with like shining eyes and said we were working together on like the Web 2.0 Expo. And she said, I need to talk like that from my conference aimed at, ex- uh, at entrepreneurs. And that's when I, I uh, started to give mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, my, my a series of talks uh, called Work on Stuff That Matters. And it's that ability to kind of tell people like it's okay to be idealistic it's okay (laughs) it's okay to do things that are that are hard and worthwhile yeah and you know there's a kind of of aspirational leadership that we need more of that tells people that it's okay uh to be about more than making money Mm. and and i have actually one i'm I'm really proud of this i've had i remember one guy talking to me he said like i was just kind of thinking about all these you know, possible startup ideas, and they didn't pass the Tim O'Reilly test. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, they were just about, you know, like, hey, I could make some money doing this thing. And he's like, I wanted to find something that I could make money doing something really worthwhile. And, you know, some of my favorite entrepreneurs, you know, they, they are like that. You know, I think about someone like Will Marshall at Planet, you know, it's like this big vision about what could we do you know, if we uh, had access to, you know, this daily view or our even uh, ultimately hourly view of the changes in the in the Earth's surface, you know, fantastic, you know, visionary investment. You know, I think about I'm just thinking about companies from our portfolio. Um, yeah. Control Labs, you know, they're thinking about direct brain machine interfaces because they think of all the possibilities that this creates for humanity. Absolutely. You know, so I get these pitches and somebody's like, well, I have this new thing to, you know, extract money from people via advertising. I go, ah, not that interesting. You know, sorry. You know, I don't know whether it's going to be a big success or not. And what does success even mean? And from from, you know, from that standpoint? Yeah. Although sometimes, you know, people start that way and then they come around with an interesting twist on it. And I go, I love it. (laughs) You know, so. I'm not saying, uh, you know, th- th- there are advertising, you know, related businesses that are creating uh, really interesting value. So completely that hopefulness, Tim, is so refreshing. And to your point is exactly what we need. I know for so many entrepreneurs who feel like they are hoping for that better place for that world where oh, this could be just so much better, we could be helping people in such a better way. I think it's it's easy to get bogged down in the, you know, the, the rest of the world telling you, oh, you know what, you know, maybe you're not going to make it or, oh, maybe you shouldn't be thinking this way or, oh, maybe you should be more focused on your short term gains than, than, than the strides you're making in the long term. So hearing that is so refreshing. Uh, the second thing that it made me kind of emote is something that I've been thinking a lot about. And in the past, you know, almost 10 years of, of studying leadership has, has, emerged as such a consistent theme is this importance of vision for a leader and shared vision, right? And that you can't motivate people, you can't expect to to make any progress if you don't have that picture of a better place. And it's different now than values, right? Values is how you do your work, right? It's, right. It might be like passion, simplicity, etc. It's also different than mission, right? Mission and purpose, that's why and what you're doing. Different than vision. Vision is 
as you were saying, it's it's what you can see. It's it's how you actually are, are thinking of that value. It's a very tangible thing. And without that, we're lost. Yeah, there's a great quote from this guy, Edwin Schlossberg, and he said it about writing, but it applies hmm. to okay. uh, you know this idea of leadership. He said, the skill of writing is to create a context in which other people can think. Oh, I love that. And in some sense, in leadership, what you are trying to do is to create a context in which other people can act. Exactly. You know, you're, you're, building exactly right. a, you're building a map and a vision uh, that people go, okay, I, 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 I don't have to have every detail filled in because I know where we're trying to go, what we're trying, what this is all about. So creating a context in which people can act is a big Absolutely. part of a, a vision because it, it's, uh, uh, it gives meaning and purpose to the, the, the choices that you make. It's the most powerful motivating force for, for, for someone to take that action. And it's the ultimate clarifying force as well, for to your point, to those decisions in that context. Yeah, and they're often a little orthogonal to the obvious. Like one of the things mm. that I've spent a lot of time on in my own company right now mm -hmm. is uh, around this whole idea of uh, platform economics. Uh, it's become mm. uh, you know clear to me. I've been spending a lot of time on this with Google and Amazon and Facebook and this idea that we're built, you know, these companies are building these big algorithmically managed economies and they have chief economists and they have these systems that really allocate uh, in this wonderful phrasing from this economist, Al Alvin Roth, who gets what and why. And I've been asking, you know, been challenging my own company to say, we have to think that way. Yes. We have to understand that, you know, particularly because we do have a a platform. We have other participants. We are allocating value through the algorithmic choices we make. Are we making the right choices? It's great because once you start thinking that way, people go, "Oh, we have to respond to this." And I, one of my uh, favorite uh, experiences of this again goes back to Laura Baldwin, who became my CFO and now is really running the company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, she was the one who kind of got me to do those layoffs back in 2000. A couple of years ago, she called, a, a, you know, in the, she's at our exec meeting. She said, we've got a crisis on our hands. What was the crisis? We had introduced a new mm -hmm. product on the platform, live online training, and it was just so popular and it had some different dynamics in terms of pricing and attention. You know, people can go to a book or watch a video and they can watch five minutes, but then suddenly it's, it's a high price thing, a live training with an hour where people, uh, you know, or two hours that people are spending the whole time totally threw off the platform economics. And uh, she said, our crisis is that we went all in and our platform participants uh, are just getting ramped up. We, we're taking too much of the value. Mm. You, know, you can see a lot of people kind of going, oh, no, you know, great. We just got you know, Pearson on their heels. We're taking more, much more of the value from the platform. Go, no, that's a problem because we want to incent them to produce value for our customers. Right. So we, we radically reduced our pricing until our, our partners could catch up in their production of these things. Wow. All I had to say was this vision of, you know, we have this job, which is to manage this platform in a way that it creates value, not just for our, our customers, but long term for our suppliers. And that exactly. we're really trying to manage this as an economy of supply and demand. And Laura, you know, she, she had read my book and she she totally grokked all this stuff. Yes. She was the one who, who, who kind of came in and said, whoa, we've got a problem. Yep. And so all I had to do was paint the story of why this is an important way for companies to think if you manage yes. a platform. 
And I, I you know, and I'm having a much harder time. I, I just had this, you know, conversation with a couple of Google execs uh, at a party uh, last week, and I'm trying to explain to them, you know, and this was the subject of a, a quartz piece that I, I wrote uh, last month, or maybe it was in May. Mm-hmm. I can't remember exactly when it came out about, you know, Amazon and Google and their management of their platforms and how Google is taking more and more of the the space from the open web. And they're just kind of like, really? You know, they they weren't even aware, Mm. quite frankly. You know, I was saying, you know, uh, almost 50 percent of clicks are now no click searches where people just get the answer right on Google. And you're not aware of that. And you're a top executive. Uh, Not only that, uh, you know, the amount of space that's given up to ads on the screen has grown to like two or three times as much than it was back when you started. Yeah. Are you aware of this? Are you thinking about it? Are you even trying to to understand that? And they say, oh, yeah, we think all the time about our ecosystem. And I go, well, maybe. You know, not hard enough. <laughs> Maybe not hard enough. You know, exactly. You know, their, their, their version of thinking about it is hand wringing over the fact that publishers aren't pulling their weight, and they're you know, it's just inevitable that you know. And this, I guess, is, is to me is when I talked about uh, economic policy and what we learned from tech. What we learn from tech is people are able to persuade themselves that, that what is in their own best interest is actually just a natural phenomenon. You know, like we are becoming a monopoly because, hey, we're just performing better right. rather than getting that they actually are in control of the rules that shape the market. And those rules just happen to make the profits flow in their direction. Exactly. Well, I think it it points to that discrepancy of when that vision is super clear for and creating that context and and when it's not, right? When it's a little fuzzier. Well, I'm not sure. I I say a lot of the things that I have worked on have Mm -hmm. been more in the fuzzy area because I'm not sure that super clear is the objective. I think the objective is... Mm -hmm. And this is why I love this framing of, you know, creating a context where people can think, creating a context where people can act. Yes. It's identifying the problem that we should all be wrestling with. Because I don't have a prescription for Google. I don't have a super clear set of you should do this or you should do that. I am just saying, hey, based on what I'm seeing, your platform economics are out of whack. And I have a basic theory that Mm -hmm. says that a good platform should be like an ecology where things are in balance. And if you become extractive, eventually that ecology or that economy will fail. And so, you know, I go, so go, go and look at your own, you know, I look at my world and I try to figure out how to apply that principle, but it's like science. It's not like, you know, there's one answer. It's, it's really a teamwork for exploring and thinking about how you run your company. Absolutely. I think a a lot of fuzziness indeed. I think I was more remarking on the consistency in which that focus on value creation versus extraction runs through. That that to me feels clear and and in an important way. Not to say that that's an answer. Not to say that that means that there's there are prescriptions for for what that looks like and manifests as. But I I do think it's it's admirable. It's it's worth having more people think about and sort of place their head and their hearts towards. And yeah, it's it's encouraging. And it and it is, and it's really it's not like you can't extract value. You want to extract value. You just want to <laughs> extract. You want to create more than you extract. You know, a great yes. analogy for this is the uh, you know the, the the prairie soil of the American Midwest. You know, mm-hmm. something like uh, you know back when it was twelve or sixteen feet deep. 
you know, when they started farming this, you know, and, you know, you come through the dust bowl, you come through all this stuff. And now we're kind of at this point where you have to put in lots and lots of fertilizer because guess what? They extracted more than they put back, you know, and at some point yep. it actually stops working as well. And so mm -hmm. if you thought about that and you go, oh, if we had figured out earlier on that the world is not limitless, that you have to actually build a, in a cycle of regeneration. And you, go, yes. you know, have this people who talk about regenerative agriculture, like, well, these are the practices that actually rebuild the soil. Uh, you know, so you take something out and you put something back, you know, and it could be the cycle of animals and crops and various kinds of things. You know, we're slowly understanding how you do that. But it starts with an understanding that you, you that you have to do it, you know, that if you don't do it, you can't, you know, that if you just extract, you'll eventually run out of uh, soil. And, and I think that, you know, that's what Microsoft did with the PC. It's yep. what I think Google is doing with the web. And I, I think that we're going to, you know, come to a point where everybody's going to go, oh, how do we build, rebuild the economy? You know, I think we mm. have we generally we have an extractive economy uh, that is not sustainable. And, and, and climate change, of course, is, is uh, one of the big things that's going to teach us that. <laughs> oh, and for already teaching us day by day, yeah. minute by minute. I yeah. could literally continue to ask you and barrage you with questions, Tim. But, you know, for the sake of, of wanting to put back more into the soil than we're taking, right? I want to be respectful of your time. Um, thank you so much, as always, for your wisdom, for your time, for continuing to be a voice to the optimism that we need as we think about leadership. And yeah, I, I encourage everyone, obviously, to to follow you, your work, O'Reilly, and that if you've enjoyed our conversation, to definitely rate, of course, our podcasts, share it, follow along on iTunes. And yeah, thank you so much again, Tim. Well, thank you, Claire. It's great to talk with you. And uh, thank you for your leadership. Appreciate it. <laughs>